So today we come to our fourth and final chapter of the book of Ruth and it's my privilege to finish the series. It's very strange not to be here together but I hope you've been able to follow us um, through this story with whatever device you're using at home and however you've found us, whether you're part of this church normally or whether you're an online visitor but whichever way you come this morning you're very, very welcome. If you've been with us for the first of these three studies, I hope God has spoken to you through David's preaching. There's so much in this story that's relevant for us as people living in the 21st century. We're all doing our best to follow Jesus Christ. So just to recap the story so far, Naomi, her husband Elimelech and two sons move out of their hometown of Bethlehem when a famine hits the land and they go across the Jordan to the hostile territory of Moab. After some time, Elimelech dies. Naomi's two sons marry Moabite women, but they too die, leaving the three women with no income. Naomi hears the famine has ended in Bethlehem and goes back there with one daughter-in-law, Ruth, who has refused to stay behind in her own country but instead chooses to follow the God of the Israelites and go with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem. Once there, it's harvest time, and Ruth gleans in the field of a relative of Elimelech named Boaz. Naomi sees Boaz as an answer to their predicament and hatches a plan to get him to marry Ruth and bring security for them both. She sends her daughter-in-law out at night to effectively offer herself to Boaz. Now, Boaz, being an upright and devout man, doesn't take advantage of Ruth, but vows to bring her and Naomi justice. And that's where we left it last week. Through the story, we've seen the courage and the determination of the two women, how they've taken the initiative in a culture where a woman's financial security and status depended on marriage to a man. We've seen how, through that culture, the poor were cared for in their community. They were allowed to glean from the edges of the fields. We've been constantly reminded of Ruth's foreign status, Ruth the Moabite. We hear it over and over in the story. She was a foreigner with a different culture, She probably looked different as well. Yet, she chooses to become like those in her new community, to worship their God. We've been introduced to the theme of redemption, the kinsman redeemer, whose duty it is to provide care, protection and compassion, and so preserving the family, the community, and ultimately the nation of Israel. We've seen so many parallels in this story to the themes that Jesus brings, even though it took place a thousand years before Jesus. He champions the causes of the poor. His heart yearns for justice. He has a special place in his ministry for women. He shows care and compassion for all in need and ultimately gives his life to redeem those who choose to follow him. Of all those wonderful truths and comparisons in this story, 
what's the one that stands out for you so far? That's the question I've had to ask myself as I've prepared for this morning and as I've studied this final chapter. Is there one thing that sticks with you about this story? Is there one thing or are there several? As this story comes to its conclusion this morning, my prayer is that God will show you what you need to hear this morning that speaks into your circumstances. Okay, back to Ruth. We left the story last week with Naomi's words to Ruth after she returned from her nighttime meeting with Boaz. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Our focus of attention now moves from what Ruth initiated in secret in the darkness of the threshing floor, it moves to the very public place of the town gates. From now on, neither woman has a voice in the story and neither woman is present as their fate is decided. But Naomi and Ruth are women of deep faith and are no doubt talking to God about their future. The town gates are in many ways the centre of town life. It's where people gather for conversation, it's where justice is administered, it's where the poor sit and wait for aid, it's where business is transacted, it's where the elders of society meet, princes and nobles, young and old. And today it's Boaz who takes his seat amongst them all. He's on the lookout for the next of kin who's closer to Naomi and Ruth than he is. And here he comes. It's interesting to note that the Hebrew expression used here is the same as the opportune arrival of Boaz in his field while Ruth was gleaning. So it's another of those coincidences in the Bible, or I think we'd prefer to call it God's perfect timing. Boaz beckons him over to sit amongst the witnesses at the town gate and makes a public announcement. He talks about the purchase of Naomi's land. Now, did we see that coming? Naomi's got land to sell. Now, to our 21st century minds, it it raises all kinds of questions. If Naomi owned the land, Why did Ruth have to go and glean in somebody else's field? Why was there no income from this land? Maybe it had been confiscated while Naomi and the family were living in Moab. I mean, there's lots of rules attached to the buying and selling of land. And um, if you want to look them up, you can look them up in our Bibles in Leviticus chapter 25. But how did Boaz know about the land? There's so much we don't know. We don't know anything about the land other than it belonged to Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband. But it's okay because Boaz knows exactly what he's going to do. He has a cunning plan. The first refusal of the opportunity to buy back the land belongs to another, to this unnamed kinsman who's now sitting in the very public place of the town gate. 
Boaz explains to him that he has first refusal on the land that Naomi is selling. Now, to his credit, this man's reaction is honourable. He's willing to buy back the land as the law demanded. But then Boaz introduces his masterstroke. He cleverly follows up with the fact that the kinsman will also be acquiring Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widowed daughter-in-law, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, it's an alien concept to us, but again, it was a custom and a law that had been given to Moses for God's people to preserve the land of the nation of Israel. Again, in our Bibles, we can find some of the the laws in Deuteronomy 25. If a man died without leaving any sons, then the unmarried brothers in his household were obliged to take the dead brother's widow in marriage to continue the family name. It's a transaction that was known as leveret marriage. Now, the consensus of the commentaries I've reckoned, uh, I've studied, reckon that this marriage that Boaz is insisting on isn't a leveret marriage, but it's, it's more of a moral obligation he's placing on this kinsman, moral obligation rather than a legal one. Now, the kinsman may be aware that he's expected to enter into a leveret marriage with Elimelech's widow Naomi. She's past childbearing age, so he'd be happy to do that, just to care for her in her old age. But when Boaz drops this bombshell that it won't be Naomi he's expected to marry, but Ruth the Moabitess, the foreigner, you can imagine he's jaw-dropping. This is a whole new ball game. Ruth would be of childbearing age, So if he fulfills his duty of leveret marriage to her and she has a son, then this land would pass to that son and it would then belong to the family line of Elimelech. So he and his existing family would eventually lose both the money he'd invested and the land. It's a no-brainer. Boaz's cunning plan has worked. By using Ruth as an add-on condition to buying the land, he knows he's placing this other kinsman in an impossible position. To act as kinsman-redeemer for him will be very costly. It would involve personal sacrifice. He would have to give part of his own inheritance for the sake of others. Boaz judged it right. This is an act of love and sacrifice that this other man is not prepared to give. In a way, this this poor man's in a a similar dilemma to Orpah. That's Naomi's other daughter-in-law at the start of the story. She, She, instead of going with Ruth to Bethlehem, she chose to go back to her own family in Moab. And now this kinsman, like Orpah, He chooses an acceptable option in terms of public opinion to allow Boaz the privilege of redeeming the land and taking on Ruth. The decisions of these two minor characters in the story are in stark contrast to the principal characters. 
both Ruth and Boaz go beyond the call of duty. They're willing to make that personal sacrifice. Ruth refused to give up caring for her mother-in-law. Boaz is determined to accept his obligation to care about members of his family. So it's Boaz who will marry Ruth. The story moves on. Once that transaction is completed, the witnesses at the town gate pray a blessing over Boaz and the absent Ruth, asking God to bless them with children. Prayer runs all through this story, as every aspect of life, individual life, corporate life, is lived in the faith that God is there and God cares. So let's recap. Naomi sends her daughter-in-law Orpah back home with prayer. Boaz, returning to his field for the first time, we see him, greets his workers with a blessing, and they respond in kind. Boaz, when he first sees Ruth, prays a blessing over her. And incidentally, we now see that Boaz himself is the answer to his own prayer. On the threshing floor in the night, Boaz again said to Ruth, the Lord bless you. And now all the people at the town gate pray a blessing over the couple. And even though the text doesn't tell us, we can imagine that Ruth was praying her socks off at home while waiting to hear which man she was going to have to marry. The story continues. After the marriage, we read, the Lord enabled her to conceive. God is portrayed only twice in the book of Ruth as intervening directly into human affairs. In chapter 1, God gives food to the people of Bethlehem. And here we read God allows Ruth to conceive. She'd been married to Marlon for some years, but there had been no children. But now she gives birth to a son. The women of the town pronounce a blessing, more prayer, this time over Naomi. The same women who saw her bitterness and grief when she first returned to Bethlehem. And when they say that the value of Ruth is more to Naomi than seven sons, seven is the traditional number of perfection, they're giving the strongest possible cultural expression of worth in a society that places such value on male offspring. She's of such value to Naomi because everything she has done from the first scene until now has led to the possibility of the birth of this child of hope. It's Ruth's faithfulness, kindness, loyalty to Naomi that has led to this outcome. In the eyes of the community, Naomi now has a longed-for son. He's named Obed, which means servant or workman and he's going to have a pivotal role in history. And as you'll have noticed when we heard the the chapter read to us, instead of this kind of happy ever after ending, the book finishes with an elaborate and slightly confusing statement of parentage. You see, Obed has two mothers, Naomi and Ruth. He also has two fathers, Boaz and Marlon. 
In this little family tree, we can see that biological parentage is not the only kind of parentage that counts. We see how Ruth, the Jewish convert, is a bridge to Jesus. The prophet Isaiah gave a specific prophecy that the coming Messiah will be descended from Jesse. Obed is Jesse's father and Jesse is King David's father. If you look at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, the first thing you'll read, if you don't skip over it, is the genealogy of Jesus, which includes Ruth and Boaz. Matthew's Gospel was written for a Jewish audience, and the first thing Matthew had to establish before he went on to preach that Gospel was to show that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. He was in the line of Jesse. He was the long-awaited Messiah. If you study that family tree in Matthew, you'll notice that Jesus' family line is traced back through Joseph, who's named as Mary's husband. Jesus is Joseph's son, the way that Obed is Marlon's son. Obed has two fathers, Jesus has two fathers. As the writer Lauren Winner puts it, it makes sense that Jesus' connection to the genealogy of the Israelites would be bigger than mere biology because one of Jesus' tasks is extending God's grace beyond the bounds of Abraham's biological descendants. When God made his covenant with Abraham, He promised he would make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Jesus is the needle who sews the children of God who are not direct descendants of Abraham into the nighttime sky. I love that. Uh, That's one for all you sewing bee fans out there. Jesus is the needle who sews us into Abraham's nighttime sky. So this strange ending to what we may have simply read like a love story turns out to be God at work, preparing the way for the renewal of Israel under King David and the redemption of God's people through Jesus Christ. So what will you take away from this story, from this final chapter? What does it mean to you? As I've studied various commentaries, the one word that sums up this whole book for me is the Hebrew word chesed. It's sometimes spelt with an H and it's sometimes with a CH because it's pronounced chesed. It's like um, Johann Sebastian Bach. It's that sort of ch. And it appears over 240 times in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word for love that's richer and deeper than English can ever express. Um, The biblical scholar John Oswald describes it this way. He says, The word chesed is the descriptor par excellence of God in the Old Testament. The word speaks of a completely undeserved kindness and generosity done by a person who's in a position of power. This was the Israelites' experience of God. He revealed himself to them when they were not looking for him 
and he kept his covenant with them long after their persistent breaking of it had destroyed any reason for his continued keeping of it. Unlike humans, he was faithful, true, upright and generous, always. Like other Hebrew verbs, hesed is not just a feeling, but it's, it's an action. Because hesed is often active, it's translated as mercy or loving kindness. But neither of these words fully convey that hesed acts out of unswerving loyalty, even to the most undeserving. Hesed is love that can be counted on decade after decade. It's not about the thrill of romance, but it's the security of faithfulness. There's another description I found. It's the consistent, merciful, kind, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of God. And one of the songs we sing here on a Sunday when we're allowed to, it has the line, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Or if you prefer your songs in old money, just think of some of the words in the verses of the hymn, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. We have ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, slow to to chide, swift to bless. The world is full of God's chesed. None of us can escape or outrun his love. Our New Testament reading goes some way towards describing it. The Apostle Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even though we're unfaithful many times, God will never leave us or stop loving us. I've got a slide here just to, for you to have a look at, to give a few words that try to describe the depth of that Hebrew word. Some Hebrew scholars would say it's the most important word in the Bible. We know the Bible is comprised of many books, but it tells one story, the story of redemption, and the climax of that drama is Jesus Christ. Each book uniquely fits into this great drama. And in the book of Ruth that we've been studying, we see human love going above and beyond in the actions of Ruth and Boaz. We see God's hesed all through the book in the care and concern for the poor, the love and protection for the foreigner, the stranger, the one who is other, the love that goes above and beyond what the law would require. And in its conclusion, we see the lineage of Ruth and Boaz leading us to King David and ultimately to Jesus. For us as Christians today, this little book of Ruth points forward to the ultimate demonstration of hesed shown through Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of love he lavishes on us, his followers, as we try to show that kind of love to others. Whether we began our lives like Ruth, not knowing the one true God, 
whether we've gone away from God to our own versions of Moab to try and seek a different life, whatever tragedies in life we've experienced, Jesus Christ enters into our brokenness, extending to us grace and mercy. As Ruth pledged to Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Nothing can separate us from the chesed of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.